0: So I'd like to continue with the talk about the seven factors of enlightenment. And uh, <clears throat> we've talked a lot about mindfulness and um, just remembering that uh, mindfulness is assumed to be there with the other factors of enlightenment. So it, it's, it's not that we ever leave that out, it helps deepen and balance all the factors of enlightenment. Um, And you'll hear me mention it as the talk goes on. And Last talk I did talk a bit about investigation, and I want to talk a bit more about that today. Uh, Mostly I'm hoping to get to joy. So just again reminding us all that uh, mindfulness is is like the weft, (laughs) I say it each time, it's like the warp of the weave, and the others are like the weft, it's what allows the weaving to take place. Uh, So investigation, energy, or courage, courageous energy, and uh, PT, joyful interest, are the energizing factors. Calm, concentration, equanimity are the tranquilizing factors. Uh, We tend to each uniquely have um, more of a predilection for one or the other. So some of us are more inclined toward the energizing factors and the calming factors aren't as accessible. And the um, people that are more inclined toward the calming factors, the energizing factors are a little bit harder to access Dogen was a great Zen teacher in Japan and um, when he was a young boy his mom died and it's said that he had a very um, powerful glimpse of um, some deeper truth when he was uh, at the funeral and he was watching that Incense smoke rising into the sky. And he described it as understanding the evanescence of life. And this glimpse of the evanescence of life um, really came out of actually a quite lonely and difficult place. And in the, in the Zen tradition, this is often used as an example of that something so difficult, your mom drying when you're young, and coming to that with that deep loneliness, um, and then having something so pure come out of that, um, that that often is <laughs> one of the ways that we come to understand things. Not all the ways, but one of the ways. And I feel like um, often a death or an illness will make us search more deeply for something deeper than life or death. Or life and death. When I was, a, um, when I was young, my mom died. And I had a similar experience, but not with, this, not with any incense smoke, but I was the only person that went to the casket and touched my mom. And it, the, the, the feeling of her cold, the coldness, the temperature, the cold was like, a, um, like an electric shock, but deeper than an electric shock. And had the same sense for me when I I have a, a feeling for the same thing that happened for Dogen. And of course we know that none of us would be in this room if we hadn't had some wake-up calls or glimpses into something deeper that motivate us to search very deeply for something that isn't conditioned, you know, there's the opposites of man, woman, you know, elder, child, you know, grief, happiness, gain, loss, all these, you know, many, many opposites. And there is a way that we are attempting to find something unconditioned, not, not in that dualistic universe. So these glimpses, whether it's something that has happened to us in our daily life or on retreat, have great impact. And they can be very different aspects of the truth. So sometimes it could be when we're eating or um, walking through the courtyard. It can be anything that something will touch us very deeply. Often it's very simple. You know, I, I could give you so many examples, but I remember one time when I was sitting a long retreat, and somebody must have had to have left the retreat early. And I saw their suitcases by these steps. Um, and I didn't even know this person. And I saw the suitcases. It was probably two months into a three-month retreat. <laughs> I just went to my room and I cried for an hour, just just that it had an impact, Right. It wasn't rational, I couldn't talk myself out of it, but just that sense of how things change was just so deep. And actually, in that particular spot, many times, it was a place that I would walk from the dining room to my room, and I remember seeing a bunch of ants carrying an ant, who knows where. But again, there was this feeling of such equality, equality between myself and these ants, that I didn't have any sense that I was better or worse, or just um, vulnerable, the same as the ants. And, you know, these don't always fit into maybe um, these glimpses of some kind of recognized place of insight that you can read about. But that isn't important. What's important is that these glimpses have impact. And that we can integrate these, these glimpses into something that we can navigate by. So the seven factors of enlightenment are actually um, uh, meant to be some kind of context for how and why these glimpses happen. And that it's said when they all come into balance, and we can't make that happen, but when they come into balance, there will usually be a sense of some kind of impact. So if we go over, you know, kind of um, the way that this practice works... um, the encouragement is to, once your attention connects with something, like the sound right now, (laughs) once your attention connects with something, can we sustain it? And sometimes I like to call that commitment because that's the, it's the C word. (laughs) It's like this, what is sustaining? What is commitment? Um, And we usually find that if we're wanting more of something, or wanting less, you know, we want more, we want less, that will kill the connection, it will kill the commitment, it will kill the ability to sustain the attention. And often what we come to find out when we sustain the attention through anything it are the three characteristics of existence. So the relationship between investigation, which is that first energizing factor, which is, as I said, it's like the light going on in a dark room. It it's that it lights up the truth that we all share as beings so this isn't saying that it's just human beings it's all beings it's beings in the god and goddess realm it's being in the in the deva realm the celestial beings it's human beings it's dogs it's geckos it's the fish in the river it's the beings we can't see all beings are subject to when you investigate the uh, moment to moment experience of body mind experience Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. And in this talk, hopefully, I don't want to spend the whole talk on each one, but I'm going to (coughs) describe them a bit and then hopefully bring them into a joyful interest. (laughs) So I know for myself, when I first started hearing, probably particularly about Dukkha, it was such a relief. that that there were some teachings on the planet that were really able to talk about impermanence or talk about um, uncertainty or vulnerability or talking about corelessness. You know that there, that 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 was such a deep relief for me, and it, I didn't have a sense of grief with it. It was like it was more like hallelujah, hallelujah somebody's got a, a map of this. You know, somebody's like addressing this. It was it, it was such a profound relief for me, and we have to remember that if there's a description in the relative level of something impermanent. Then the idea is that 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 can't possibly be us. Anything impermanent can't possibly be us. That would be the most important thing to remember. And you know, these questions that investigation brings up like, when you cut your hair and it's on the ground, is that you? When you urinate and it comes out of your body, is that you? When you eat, this is really important investigation when you bring that food closer and closer to you. At what point would you think it would be you? Is it when it touches your lip? Is it when you chew it? Is it when it's sliding down? You know, and then what happens when it comes out? These are really basic things, but we don't check it out. Like what who who are we? Is that can a thought possibly be us when it's the most insubstantial thing in the world? You can't hardly see it, you know? And yet it becomes such an important thing for us, and yet it can't possibly be us, and it can't possibly be somebody else. Or fear, happiness. Uh, so that encouragement. Again, Ehi Pasi Ko. Just show up for it. Check it out. Find something permanent. And then as we have this uh, rare privilege to get to practice this long and to have the conditions of support for that, and we get to see at times that it's not just impermanent, it's so fleeting, And um, that we put so much weight on this. We have so much identification with it. And again, there's so many layers to that. So that's what is meant to be exposed on deeper and deeper levels. And then dukkha, um, because of impermanence, dukkha exists so it it they 're all really all related, but it's really that sense of uncertainty that that 's the clearest meaning of dukkha it's it 's translated as suffering, you know that we can see it as a kind of angst, but it's really that experience isn't dependable it's uncertain and I love the word vulnerable because it, it's it often takes out a lot of the um extra sting or judgment with it except that culturally we tend to associate vulnerability with weakness which is unfortunate you know because when we are able really to be just vulnerable or sensitive as our sense doors (laughs) imply uh, we're very strong we're the most strong Vulnerable meaning, you know how you count the days to the end when it's not easy, you know, and it it could be anything that bothers us, you know, and it's it you can you can really even like it here a lot, but when it's trouble, when there's any trouble, you like you really count you depend on time, right, and then you get to the next place, and it's the same thing. It's like we we get to this place where. Oh, you know, it's like this, that, but it's okay. And yet, when things are hard, we take refuge in impermanence. And we we, we like the idea of time. (laughs) And then the opposite happens. And, you know, it's like the thought of having to leave here so soon can be unbearable. It'll be the other side where not only is it just maybe here, but we'll have this idea that we want to practice a long time somewhere else because it's going well. And we'll see it's how, what do you call it, um, fickle. (laughs) How fickle we are. Just incredibly fickle. And this is what I mean by connecting, sustaining our attention. How, How actually... Um, It's much easier to keep doing new things than to sustain the attention through the same thing. Anatta. Often when we sustain the attention through something long enough, whether it's with a person or with a breath or with anything, we find that it's not controllable. And we don't like that. and that you know it's not just that it's uncontrollable but the, the insight in in this framework of anatta is really that if you pay attention to anything close enough it's insubstantial it it just it it it's disappearing if you stay with it moment by moment so um, one of the things to check out in our practice is just to see at times if we're disconnected from any of these. If we're disconnected at times from impermanence, of course, we suffer. If we're disconnected from dukkha, we suffer. If, we, if we're if we disconnected from anatta, we're su- we suffer. And I'll go into different aspects about that. And uh, just the last thing about this connecting, sustaining, often Um, as I said the other day there's often a grief process that we have when we really sustain the the attention through something so for example when I was a little kid I remember it hit me earlier than most kids because uh, my father was um, recognizably not perfect. <laughs> kind of younger than for most kids. But I don't know if you remember the point in time where you started to see one of your parents as not as perfect as you wanted them to be. And that there's a grief process in that. But we do it with every human. We have to. We have, we have to face that sense that, Oh, um, oh they are, they're not actually at third stage of enlightenment. So they have aversion and attachment. And it's disappointing. Yeah? And it's disappointing in ourselves. And to be able to just go, ah, ah, disappointment. Just to be able to explore it, to be with it. There is that sense of um, the loss of the illusion of finding somebody that's going to be perfect. Or that's really going to um, meet that kind of um, demanding, self-centered, needy mind. You know, that, that that we really apply to just about anything. We can apply it to the breath. We can apply it to the food. We can apply it to the bath we have with the bucket. Or, you know, we can apply it to anything. And that isn't to say that it's wrong to have self-centered thinking. What I would encourage is to check it out. Mostly we do have self-centered thinking, and in fact that's its purpose. You're not meant to be putting in a whole different soundtrack into your head. It's like you'll see that a lot of the thinking is really meant to be a fight-or-flight protective um, response to how things are what we start to do is be able to say oh yeah, disappointment (laughs) and then be much more realistic it's like facing limitation again and again facing how it really is versus how we want it to be and I would say the degree to which we can be mindful of disappointment would be how mature our heart really is the other side to that, again, I want to mention a lot, is the relief in that, of, of that. The energy just keeps getting freed up. The courage and the energy just gets freed up more and more to be with things as they are. And then it will lead to joyful interest. So joyful interest is when we can just take how things are as just enough. It's good enough. It's just enough. So that when we're trying to make the breath all different kinds of ways and how it's actually appearing, we're trying to control it. But if we just receive the breath, just as it is for a few seconds, it will be more than enough. If you receive something that purely with a pure exploration, which is joyful interest, uh, and the courage, the investigation, the courage allows for that process to happen, um, then I would call that pure exploration. The exploration about what's happening isn't motivated by self-centered desire. So it's pure. So I wanted to go into one more thing about anatta before we shift um, into more about joyful interest. Um, But it's really to help us, you know, have some patience with investigating it. In the Mahasi method, we don't know I am hearing, or I am lonely, or I am stepping, or I am eating, right? It's like beautiful. It's just hearing. So you're taking out, again, any reference point to oneself. There's a beauty in that. I just spaced out. (laughs) You, you, You don't hear this as a note, right? You don't hear, note, I am happy. It's just happy. And what I would recommend with that is then when you can recognize something and you, you can just go, whatever, breathing, hearing, stepping. That again, you make some space in time without the words to really allow the experience to emerge just as it is. Without the past conditioning. It's just like that hush I mentioned this morning in the instructions to almost say, it's like, shh. You know, it's almost like watching a baby be born, or a, a leaf open up. It's, it's that delicate. You're watching life as it is unfold. It's so delicate and beautiful, vulnerable. Krishnamurti said in one of his journals, just to be vulnerable, just to be sensitive, like that new green leaf that was born yesterday, to face rain, sunlight, darkness. You know it's like, what are we doing? How do we relate to the dark? How to relate How do we relate to the sunlight? Do we just like the sunrise? One of the um, pre-digital metaphors I like to use for getting a sense of that f- truth of existence, anatta, is to remind us all that if we went into a movie theater right now, or say we had a big white sheet in the back over, over the altar uh, and somebody came in with a projector, and there was a person behind the projector a good meditation teacher is going to say you know, pay attention to how you're watching the movie and start to see where you're identified right or not identified with certain beings certain things that are happening but then there will be encouragement to turn around and go to the projector and then if you're quiet enough You know, there'll be times when there'll be an instruction to look at the film. And it's only because that film is being played at a certain speed that we can take it for what we think it is, right? And this is what we are doing, moment by moment. It's because we're used to going at one speed, that we don't see what Sayadaw was talking about yesterday, that it really is frame by frame but what I would like to say about frame by frame is that that means that a frame is complete. The frame includes the whole universe. Then it's gone. The mind is that vast. That's why you can be omniscient if one chooses to be and works at it, because that you can't possibly be omniscient if there wasn't a completion in one frame. It wouldn't be possible that... So what we're encouraging is a pre-verbal awareness. Mindfulness is a pre-verbal awareness. Someone said to me the other day when I was trying to in- explain this, it's like, Michelle, you're saying we're, we're meant to be dropping in between the lines. That metaphor might work. But whatever it is, it's like there's always something invisible there's always nirvana. There's always the unconditioned. If there's the condition, there has to be the unconditioned. And we're so enthralled with the relative level, right? We're so enthralled with the movie. And part of it, in this particular Mahasi method that can be hard, is that there are dry periods because we get, we're meant to get disenchanted with experience. I used to just, have I have a good imagination. When it would get really dry, I would just pretend I had eaten a hundred crackers, you know, just without any water. Like, it would just get so dry, you know. <laughs> just Sometimes you have to take a little, you know, break and just add something into the frame-by-frame frame, bear attention. I mean, it's not hard here. You could just walk up and stare at the Bougainvillea. Take a, little, take a little break. Do some loving-kindness practice. But the idea is that we're trying to develop an awareness that isn't tied to experience, that isn't imprisoned by experience. Meaning that we don't get caught up in the ups and downs. We're not identifying good practice as being me, or bad practice as being me. We're not identified with, I want to be the best yogi here, I'm the most special yogi here, I'm the worst yogi here, (laughs) I'm doing terrible, well, at least I'm equal to everybody here. You know, we do this whole thing, right? And that, just learning that those thoughts, of course they come up. This is what we do. In fact, that kind of thinking, conceit, doesn't disappear until full enlightenment. Comparing, the Buddha said comparing is madness. And when I say take a break, sometimes it just happens naturally. When I was um, pretty young, I remember reading some um, Chinese, old, old Chinese poetry, and there was a phrase that I just, Went in, it was like um, the blue of the sky touches my shoes. It was like, hmm. (laughs) It was so deep, yeah? It's just like that's a very much an anatta perspective. But it's said in a very different way than being aware of knowing pressure, stiffness right and then <laughs> pressure stiffness disappearing the mind appearing you know that, that whole way of describing it that I was doing is a really important way and then this other more poetic way also can nourish the heart if it gets you know too much one of my favorite things here is to pour water out of my thermos and just to taste the water and taste the wood the wood fire in the water. You know, this is deep. This is something really important to investigate and to understand. This is just part of a um, long um, narrative from the Haida Gwaii, uh, but it, it's, a, it's a long thing, but there, there's a description of the sound of a bird. And, it, it, and it, the sound of the bird, it, the description is that the sound of the bird pierced a blue hole in the heart of the one that heard it. Very different way of describing something that's very important sound of the bird pierced a hole, a blue hole, <laughs> in the heart of the one who heard it. You know that, again, it's like different ways of describing the same thing. Because we can never totally describe it. So if you can have the courage this is the third factor of enlightenment, to go through this process of what I call purity, purification, purity, purification, over and over again, which means some of the factors of enlightenment are all of them come into balance, and then they come out of balance. <laughs> and then some of them or all of them come into balance, and we call that good practice, and then they go out of balance, and we call that bad practice. And the worst part about when they come out of balance and this is scientific, I didn't make it up. <laughs> this is just what happens. But as your energy starts to go down another layer of purification comes up. So you're holding the hindrances at bay and you know there's a way in which everything's kind of going along and it's like, you know, if you acted it out it would be like, oh Finally, you know, it's like you've done all this work and you feel protected from the hindrances and, you know, you're seeing clearly and this is when you plan, you know, your next retreat and, you know, it's all going well and then the energy goes down and you can feel it. You know it's going. And it's just so painful. It's really painful because you can't control it. It's falling apart and that's just when another layer of aversion and attachment are coming up. And it's the last, you know, we're so vulnerable, it's the last thing we need, right? At that point in time. That's how it happens. And then we fight it. We're trying to hold on to that good stuff, right? And it's like in the meantime, this other stuff is coming. Equanimity, this last factor of enlightenment, is me is when there's no resistance to anything whatsoever. So it can be when that space happens, if we like wanting comes up or impatience comes up or frustration it's like if equanimity is there there's enough like composure to go oh frustration I was hoping that would come up right now right or oh, lust yeah I was really hoping lust would come up now that's an easy one right you know whatever it is and And, you know, there's that workability there. But often, when we're having that energy going down, it's like, oh, no, this is going to ruin my practice, right? Oh, no, not this one again. And we feel unprotected. So I could go into this much more, but just please know that this practice is just like, a good practice feels like warm, soapy water. It is like warm, soapy water. And it's like it's meant to be cleansing. It's meant to be that at some point we will get a chance to see where we're, we're not free. And of course we really want that. We really want to get free. But when we're hit with something we don't think is really what we should be paying attention to. And that's you know that's when we start to go down. But eventually... As we've said, you know, you can even go all the way down to despair, hopelessness, and it's like, it's okay. And, and, I, and I have something about doubt. I suppose I could do that now. But basically, doubt is just we've lost the thread. You know, we, the controller has appeared. We think we can control this process that I just described. And we get into this whole overlay of shoulds, how we want the experience to be, you know, or don't want it to be. And it's really such a relief again when we can go, oh yeah, discontentment, you know, discouragement, disappointment. And it's really the opposite of this next factor of enlightenment, joyful interest. So just to know, you know, doubt, doubt is insidious there's always a recipe for it we so wanted so much more to be happening than what than what's happening so again the wanting more or wanting less will kill the connection with what actually is happening I really appreciate that this next factor of enlightenment was described by the Buddha as uh, the gateway to enlightenment. Joy. The gateway to enlightenment. Very important. And in this context, it's PT, you know, has different levels, uh, and there's a lot, again, to be said about it. But just to remember that in its purity, it's when there is no agenda and then when there is no expectation. And I like to call it pure exploration. And we equally, we're equally, equally interested. It's the deep delight in the truth of things and the truth as it is, not how we're wanting it. So, for example, probably one of the experiences that... Is really the hardest for us human beings to be with is shame. And you probably didn't think, oh boy, I hope shame comes up a lot at my next retreat, because you know, I don't know how to be mindful of it yet, right? It's a joke. Very few people will even raise their hand and say, you know, I'm just being clobbered by shame and humiliation and, <laughs> and defeat. And it's just um, not, jealousy is another one, not our favorite experiences. To be interested in But in this context Joyful interest is impartial It's interested in Pleasure or pain or neutral It's interested in life as it is Meaning that sometimes For some people Pleasure is really scary to explore Pain can be just as Difficult to explore Without Getting caught up in identifying with it as me, or I, or mine. This is from um, a book, I Am That, by Sri Nizar Gadada Maharaj a question to him or even a comment was pain is not acceptable and he said why not did you ever try do try and you will find in pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does the personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self, with its desires and fears, enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. Pain, then, therefore, is painful when resisted, joyful when accepted. One of my uh, first students years ago, (laughs) I think it was 82, during a three-month retreat, um, had one of the more intense uh, symptoms of restlessness I'd ever seen. But I was new, and um, the only thing that seemed to work for him was to literally walk. All, you know, between thirty and fifty miles a day. I'm not kidding. He just morning ate breakfast, went out all day, just walked and walked and walked and walked and walked, Would come back at tea time, and he did that for three months. And um, I knew the the man that open <laughs> that owned the general store about I don't know four miles away. And one time I went in there to get something, and he said, "Michelle, there's some somebody from your place that is like coming in here, you know, mid afternoon, late afternoon. It was on his way back, and he said he just walks up and down and looks at all the things in the store, and he just stares at all the packages and reads the ingredients on the chips and touches everything." he said, "Is that normal?" <laughs> I'm like, "No, nah, normal." I said, "Well, let's just assume maybe you're normal <laughs> that that's normal for somebody to come in your store and be interested in on your product." <laughs> he said, "But he doesn't buy anything. That's <laughs> so funny. And, it, you know, it's fun to see things over time. It's something I can offer you. You know, it's like, um, speed it up. He came to a three-month retreat, and he hated everybody. I mean, it was just like everybody drove him crazy. It's like all that needing that such a big pastor, you know, was really avoiding the aversion, right? And when he tried to stay put, just this tremendous amount of aversion was coming up. And just, again, holding him through that and letting him, you know, go for a little walk. But really, he hardly needed to go out. Really. He just sat and walked that retreat, but just exploding with aversion. (laughs) And then speed it up. You know, one of the last times I taught a three-month retreat with him. And this is after a lot of suffering and effort you know he every interview he would come in just like totally peaceful and quiet and he wouldn't say anything for maybe 10 minutes and a little tear a little tear would come down his cheek and then he'd just say I'm fine nobody's driving me crazy everything's fine And that he described that retreat as um, the valley of contentment. And then the next long retreat he did, he came in, uh, you know, a week or two into it, and he said, what happened to the valley of contentment? <laughs> and I said, well, you might be moving on. You might be going, you know, deeper and having to work with some deeper stuff." And he's like, oh... It doesn't stop. And I said, well, you know, you'll, you're moving on. You've got other stuff to do. You see, we want it to stay the same. But to go from walking 30 to 50 miles, in a, miles a day to just exploding anger, to that deep contentment, it was breathtaking. And, you know, this is what happens. We go through, this is, you just put in your time, and it's what happens. You go through those layers. You go through purity, purification, purity, purification, until really you just are able to be mindful of more and more, less and less resistance to anything. It's the resistance that's so painful. Sometimes with uh, PT or joyful interest, I remember there was a time when my system just felt like champagne, very light champagne, Uh, and one of my teachers was saying, you know, (laughs) you're not getting attached to that, are you? And I'm like, no, (laughs) I'm not getting attached to this. And then I'd even try, I'd be like, liking, liking, pleasant, pleasant, and I had myself totally convinced I wasn't attached to it. Um, And then, you know, there might be light, 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 and then... (laughs) Maybe two sittings later, I'd be like, you know, sleeping, right? Falling asleep, and I'd think, what happened to my bubbly feeling? <laughs> and then it was clear. It was, it was not that big an attachment, but it was like, more like, what happened? You know, it's like, what happened to the valley of <laughs> What happened to the bubbly feeling? You, could, you know, there's that still, there's a light attachment. It might not be so intense, but there's work to do. No matter what theoretical stuff you hear, no matter what, all the things you might hear that will co- be confusing, really the practice is, is there anything sticky? If there's something sticky, that's where the work is. That's, and it just, just be honest with yourself. And that's all it takes, the whole path. Sticky or non-sticky. Hmm. <laughs> When um, we talk about these energizing factors of enlightenment, the basis of it is, again, uh, mindfulness. So I wanted to read something that's very important. It's from Suzuki Roshi. The goal of the practice is always to keep our beginner's mind. It's, 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 it's the practice in a nutshell. <laughs> the goal of the practice is always to keep our beginner's mind. Suppose you recite a sutra only once. It might be a very good recitation. But what would happen to you if you recited it twice, three times, four times, or more? You might easily lose your original attitude towards it. The same thing will happen in your other practices. For a while you will keep your beginner's mind, but if you continue to practice one, two, three years or more, although you may improve some, you are liable to lose the limitless meaning, the limitless meaning of original mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are a few. You know, this is so important. And, and all of these energizing factors are meant to help us shift to beginning again and beginning again and seeing if we can be interested in walking out of this hall standing. If you can walk out of this hall from where you sit and stand and walk to the door without trying to get somewhere, but here, that is the practice. And then you get through the door and the door is amazing. How many times have you touched that door and opened the door and not noticed it? Doors are always amazing. Being able to open them, to be able to have a hand that can actually work and open them is amazing. Having a mouth that will open, that will chew and swallow and digest, a body that can eat is amazing. Whatever it is, if we're hurrying through it, and we think that where we're trying to get to is more important than where we are, we're suffering deeply. So uh, this genuine interest, it takes time. It takes time to not think that I've got to get out of the hall to get to my walking place, because that's so much more important. You know, and I took a long time exploring this. That's the joy of a long retreat. We have an hour for walking. You don't have to rush out there. <laughs> that's the good news. And to see that with these energizing factors, we will, of course, have to go into this more the next talk. But if you look at the imagery of the Buddha, but, of course, remembering that the Tathagata, the Buddha once thus gone, there was no imagery for so long, four or five hundred years. But if you look at the imagery that came, this, this image of the face, it's not like it's... Um, so joyful that it's like going off like a rocket, right? It's not like ecstasy, like crazy, wild joy, right? It's balanced with calm, concentration, equanimity. It's a quieter joy, it's serene. So we'll go through periods where there will be uplifting joy, you know, goosebumps. Sometimes you'll feel like you're floating. That all can happen at times. But the idea is that whenever the, the, you have these intense energy rushes or small, quieter energy rushes, the idea is learning how to um, understand that that energy is meant to help us bring reality more into focus. You, you shift back into, you just drop into whatever's happening in the moment rather than getting carried away we can get carried away, that's often, you'll find, you know, all of a sudden you'll remember somebody that was in the back row of your first grade class, and their image will come really into focus, and it's like, wow, you know, or this song will repeat and repeat, or whatever it is, our history will just be going through, Um, we might be figuring out the most important concept related to, to Sayado's talk, right, that, you know, it's like, whatever it is, this, seduction of figuring out the practice may be the most seductive uh, and when you find yourself doing that just try to begin again this transition it's a gateway to enlightenment joy for joy ah oh, this should be this should be put on everybody's forehead joy is the gateway to enlightenment It doesn't have to be a sensational, intense joy. It can be a very quiet joy, or a serene joy. Maybe barely a whisper. But the gateway is that it can help us purely explore without the agenda, without wanting more than what's really happening. And it it really is the factor that does allow us to be interested in shame as well as the breath, as well as joy and sorrow. I had some I have some friends that when one of their kids was um in junior high or yeah junior high, and he was starting to play soccer, and the team that his town played tended to be much rougher than the the co you know the coach allowed on their team or the the kids on their team uh, and so when their son would go out and play in the soccer field. The kids were very rough, and sometimes he'd, he'd get kind of knocked about and beat up a bit, and uh, his mom didn't want him to play anymore, and his father would be even upset but still wanted him to play. And they talked with me about it. So I, I, went, I just asked him, I said, you know, why, why in the face of sort of getting more, more hit around or banged up than you would want, why do you keep doing it? 'Cause I thought that was important. Why do you want to keep doing it? And he said his eyes just lit up. And he's like, I love soccer so much that I'm willing to do I'm willing to put up with that. I just love it so much. <laughs> so I went back to his mom and I'm like, He's you know, they're not gonna be as bad as some teams. It's not that bad. He just loves it so much. He he wants to play, let him play. Retreats are like that. If you're growing, you're inevitably going to be hitting something that is tough, you know, and not maybe... I don't mean that you get physically bruised, but certainly it's hard (laughs) to sit and walk. It's hard, but the real hard one is having the courage to come in and sit down and not know what's going to happen. And then you go out to walk and you don't know what's going to happen and then you come and you sit, and you don't know what's going to happen. That takes courage, but it's just like life. And yeah, you're going to hit some painful stuff, and you'll hit pleasurable stuff, and neutral, and you're meant to go through it again, and again, and again. You know, how many times do you have to, like, put the bucket of water over your head, or, you know, eat? It's like, you're, this practice is all about repetition you know just like it's all about it like can you be committed through what it's re- what's really happening can you do it and of course you need to take like <laughs> little holidays you know you go in the past and the future and you realize wow okay start again Start again because there is something deeper than life and death. And this is this practice is designed to find the pauses, to find there's something else that is invisible, that's always here, that you just trust, you keep just trusting that you're dropping into it. You already are. It's it's beautiful. It's your birthright. so hopefully we can love the truth so much that we're willing to go through what we need to go through this is from Rumi pale sunlight pale the wall love moves away the light changes I need more grace than I thought as I said we need all the help we can get and just know that just know that this takes a lot of courage and then you rest and then the dog's all (laughs) and then you courage you anchor you courage you anchor and it it's just a a very noble thing to do so let's sit for a minute